I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up the stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, It is not written in your law, I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Thanks, Sherry. You guys can have a seat. Hello. Good morning. Oh, thank you. I'll keep that Bible here. Um, it is good to see you guys. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know, I've been gone for the last couple weeks. I spent the first half of November in Nepal, uh, and I'm excited to um, be able to share some stories with you guys over the coming weeks and months as it is natural. Uh, if you guys are interested, I did post up on our website, anthemventura.org, just like a little bit of a travel log with some pictures so you guys can see some of the places we went. Uh, and I am, I'm especially excited to share some stories with you guys. Uh, but I just want to say one thing before we dive into the text today. Uh, Touch Nepal. The organization with which I went uh, was part of our Celebrate Generosity this year. You guys remember at the beginning of October, we were rallying our hearts around generosity and ready to give and give big as a like whole collection of churches. Arise, Anthem Ventura, Anthem Camarillo, Thousand Oaks, and in Denver as well. We pooled all our money and gave it to some amazing organizations like Zoe International, Touch Nepal. We gave it to a whole bunch of church plants as well. And I just want to share with you guys, uh, one, that part of my trip in, in Nepal was to actually go out and see some of the work that we've been investing in for the last decade or so. And I just came uh, back so blown away about what God is up to and, and honestly how they can take very, very little and God seems to multiply its effectiveness into all these areas that we are working into. But also I wanted to share with you guys because we kind of left some uh, of the, genero the Celebrate Generosity Fund open all through October and I just got the final numbers back. I didn't even tell Steve what the final number was. I just found out about this. The final total given from all of the churches that were participating this year was $200,000 and eight. $200,008. Um, come on. Yeah. So good. So we got to participate with like five different church plants, Zoe International, Touch Nepal, City Center here in Ventura. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I hope if you participated that you feel the joy and the blessing that is to give rather than receive. 
Let's get into the text today. Sherry read for us the back half of John 10, with which Steve started us into last week. Jesus is the good shepherd. This is one of those like chapters in John I wish we could be in for three months because there's so much to mine in here, but we're not. We're in here for, for two weeks. And so what I want to do is I want to point your attention to Jesus's prevailing argument throughout the uh, chapter 10 in the book of John. But before we do, I want to throw a couple things at you. 6% of Americans believe the moon landing was faked. 5% are uncertain, which means if you were to walk down the street asking people if man walked on the moon, one out of every nine people would either say no or I don't know, or who can know? There We're living in a time right now where there's no shortage of conspiracy theories or conspiracy theorists. Did Biden actually win? Are vaccines actually safe? Is Bill Gates trying to put a 5G microchip in all Americans? Is the world actually run by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles? Before we chalk this up to just a few crazy people, I want to share with you guys a few more stats. Before Facebook moved to block a lot of QAnon content, some popular QAnon groups on the platform had hundreds of thousands of members. NBC News reported last year on an internal Facebook study that found that thousands of QAnon pages and groups operating on the social network had millions of members between them. Twitter removed more than uh, 70,000 QAnon-affiliated accounts after the Capitol riots on January 6th. And some YouTube videos explaining the tenets of QAnon garnered millions of views before they were taken down last year. Which kind of puts to shame the whole moon landing thing, right? Which seems kind of funny or trivial and such a small percentage of the population is suddenly a large percent of our population is dealing with the reality of contested truth. What is truth? Who can know truth? And this seems to be a marker of the time and place that we find ourselves in, that truth and evidence are not a given, but it's all contested, because who can really know? Now, I'm not going to answer questions about lizard people eating babies uh, or secret global powering acquiring cabals, uh, but I bring this all up because the conspiracy theorists remind me a little bit of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. In that, in spite of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, they do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. In spite of all his teaching, in spite of all his miracles and signs, in spite of exorcisms and all the things that seem so obvious to us 2,000 some odd years later, they stand in the face of all that evidence and say, ah, but who can really know? How how can I possibly know? Or, you know what, I, I just don't believe it. It seems too good to be true. Or this seems too crazy to be true. We live in a time and place, much like Jesus' time and place, where truth is contested. It's not a given. And the book of John was written so that those who hear or read it might believe. It is a persuasive book. John very much has an agenda. 
And that agenda is for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and not just believe at an intellectual level, but actually orient your entire life around that truth and reality. And John does this through a bunch of different avenues. Sometimes it's highlighting signs that force people to wrestle with this, like the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, healing a blind man. Sometimes it's a prophetic moment with like the woman at the well or Nathaniel. And sometimes it's a teaching where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. To anyone thirst, I'm the bread of life. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. And each of these instances has caused everyone involved to have to answer the question, is this the Messiah or isn't he? John wants to tell you the story of Jesus' life in a way that will inspire full-blown devotion to this Jesus Messiah. So is Jesus the Messiah or isn't he? This is the question that is alive in the text and has been alive for like the last five or six chapters. If you guys have been tracking with us, I hope you guys have noticed between Steve and I, we kind of come back to the same question. Is Jesus who he says he is? And if he is, will we actually follow him? Because if he isn't, we should walk away right now. Because none of this is worth it if he's not who he says he is. None of this. So much of what Jesus calls you to runs counter and contrary to the world around us. It's just not worth it if Jesus isn't who he said he is. This is too hard. It's disrupted too many friendships, too many families. It calls you to sacrifice far too much. It calls you to change how you parent, change how you spend money, change how you spend your time. Changes your marriage, it changes your workplace. And if Jesus is not who he said he is, it's just not worth it. But if Jesus is who he said he is, friends, it's so worth it. We should orient our entire lives around following this homeless Jewish itinerant preacher who claimed to be God because if he is, that changes everything. This, I hope you're noticing, is not a new motif. It is the one that has been running throughout the book of John so far. But we find ourselves today in verse 22 with a bit of a two-month gap between where Steve left us off. So we're on to another feast. This is a feast we would know now today as Hanukkah. So tis the season, right? We're coming up right into that season. So this is around the time of that particular feast in verse 22 that Sherry read for us. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And the Jews gathered around him and asked what feels like a broken record question. Who are you? Tell us about yourself. What's your deal, man? Like over and over and over again, they ask these same questions. I have to imagine some of the same people that are here continually asking Jesus in light of the teachings, the prophecies, and the healings, and the signs, and the miracles. Who are you really? Maybe hoping he just outs himself as a liar or a fool. But Jesus consistently engages with those who do not believe, trying to point them to not only himself, but we'll see in the text, the Father who sent him. And this right here is at the heart of the text. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Which to me reads like a joke for people who have not been tracking for the last couple of chapters because he has said plainly who he is and what he is here to do. But Jesus actually goes on to give some insight and reasoning for why they don't believe. He's like, the reason you don't believe is, and the reason you haven't been able to hear is because you're not among my sheep. 
So there's this weird dynamic between believing in Jesus enabling you to believe. That's weird, right? That's a little bit strange. This doesn't seem to me entirely evangelistic or welcoming or inclusive. Jesus says, you're not among my sheep, so you cannot hear. You cannot understand. Verse 25 and 26, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. And Jesus is actually touching back to the last section, which would have been a couple of months ago, where he's identifying himself as a good shepherd. And those that follow him are the sheep. Jesus spoke in the last section about the sheep knowing his voice. And here he's insinuating that anyone who doesn't believe that he's the Messiah simply just can't hear him. They can't understand And for whatever reason, there's a bunch of reasons, by the way, that Jesus talks about here and in other Gospels. The parable of the soils is one of those. That people are unable to fully grasp the implications of Jesus' teaching. And Paul picks up on this theme when he writes to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 2, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death. To the other a fragrance from life to life was sufficient for these things. What Jesus and Paul are both getting at here is there will be those who get Jesus and those who don't. Are you offended at that truth? I am. Come on, if we're being real, I'm kind of offended at that. That's not super inclusive. That doesn't seem loving, right? That doesn't seem like Jesus' arms are open wide. It seems like there are those who will get it and those who won't. Who is sufficient for these things, to quote Paul. But those who get Jesus, those who hear him, those who believe, who reorient their life, will live diametrically opposed lives to those that do not. But believing this Jesus is the Messiah is is quite a big leap. And I think those of us in the room, myself included, who may be grown up in a church context, take that reality for granted. That this homeless Jewish guy from 2,000 years ago, claiming to be God, is actually God, this long-awaited, long-foretold Messiah who had entered humanity, save all of it, redeem it back to the way it was supposed to be. For those of us who was raised in the church, that's like table stakes. But maybe for those of you who weren't, you can testify that that's actually a big intellectual leap to jump. That's like a huge thing to grapple with. That is either a huge work of the Spirit or something that is happening in your life to move you in that direction because that, on the surface, seems like one of those conspiracy theories. If someone were to walk up to you today and say, I'm God, what's your first thought? Drugs? (laughs) Something's wrong with their brain? Maybe mental illness? Right? Or maybe some kind of YouTube channel, like surprise thing that's trying to get a rise out of people and make a funny video. Like all these, all these things, right? I actually sometimes feel a great deal of compassion for the people who are around Jesus, for the Jewish people, the Pharisees and others that struggle to believe what Jesus is saying. Because if he showed up in my town, in my time, in my place, I don't know if I would be that guy who's like, Jesus, I'm all in. I think I'd be like, who's this crazy person? You look homeless, bro. I don't know if you're God. It doesn't look like you've taken a shower in a little while. I don't know, man. I don't know. I sometimes have compassion for these people. 
In my arrogance, I'm like, oh, geez, how come you guys aren't getting it? It's Jesus. And I'm like, oh, man, how often do I miss Jesus right in front of me? But Jesus says, looks to my works. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. He says, look at my evidence. Look behind my shoulder. Look at the healed people, the exercised people. Look at the teaching, the prophetic words. Look at it all. Are these the works of the Father? Do you think the work of the Father is healing a blind man, redeeming sinners, forgiving people, showing them they're loved, they're cared for, they're protected? Do you think that's the heart of the Father? Look behind me. Because if you're seeing the works of the Father, you're seeing the Father in me. We think he's crazy, but then there's all these things that he's done that make you think twice. He says he's God. Ah, that's not possible, but he did turn that kid's lunch into a meal for thousands. Ah, he says he's God. That's not possible, but he did spit on some dirt and put it on some guy's eyes, and now he can see. He says he's God. Ah, that's not possible, but everyone was at that wedding and swears all that water was turned to wine, and it was good wine, too. Something's up with this guy. I got to admit, if I encountered a homeless guy who did that stuff, I might think twice. I might think twice. Maybe it's not a conspiracy theory after all. Maybe it's not some guy just trying to punk me. Maybe it's not a crazy homeless person. Maybe something is actually happening here. But he continues in verse 38. But if I do them, the works of my father, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. So you don't believe my words, believe the stuff I'm doing that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Other places, he says, I'm only doing the Father's will. I'm only doing what the Father wants me to do. Even with all that evidence, there's something inherently offensive about Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, which is like his landing point, right? Which is his mountain he will die on, literally. I and the Father are one. And the response to that is the Jews pick up the stones to stone him. And the reality is if Jesus is not God, that is an appropriate response according to Jewish law. That is the correct religious and right thing to do. This is a massive transgression. You don't go around claiming deity. That's not appropriate. Even today, Jesus' claims are utterly offensive to the world around us. In the same way Jesus' claims were utterly offensive to the Jewish world around him. His claims are offensive to the world around us now. The things that he calls us into just do not fit into modern sensibilities. Jesus preaches an exclusive gospel that Steve so eloquently highlighted for us last week. It's one door, one gate. It's narrow. He preaches an exclusive gospel. There's only one way to God. Guys, I just spent the last two weeks in a country that overwhelmingly believes there are like tens of thousands of ways to all of the gods. It's disturbing and it's sad. The amount of temples that I was walking around, little and big, that people are making ritualistic worship and sacrifices for. You know people are still sacrificing animals in countries? You know that's still a thing? Beware when you see a goat tied up in Nepal. You know what's about to happen to that goat. It's sad. 
We think an exclusive gospel is like offensive and it's, and it's exclusive to people and it's like, oh, it's not very kind or whatever. You know what's not kind is giving people 100,000 gods that they have to appease and maybe they'll make it a little bit further in the next life. That's heartbreaking. So the exclusive gospel of Jesus is freedom for these people when they hear it. Jesus preaches an objective morality, that there is a right and wrong way to live here and now. There is a prescriptive definition for holiness and right living. Ah, but that goes against like what I want to do. But it doesn't feel right. Or it does feel right to do this thing that someone's telling me I should not do. Who wins? Goes against our internal matrix for self-authority, individualism. Jesus preaches a fixed future that God's kingdom will reign for eternity and some will join him. Also, not super popular. And Jesus preaches a selfless, peace-seeking life. Which, by my re-entry into social media over the last couple of weeks, is not really well represented at the moment. A selfless, peace-seeking, sacrificial life. The truth about Jesus is absolutely true or absolute blasphemy. There's no middle ground here. And as he was going to the cross, it was going to be one of those two things. Right? For that reason, the resurrection of Jesus will always remain a pivotal part of not only human history, but your history as well. Because A dead Jesus is a blasphemous Jesus. A risen Jesus is the Son of God. That's it. This is what he's alluding to. That's what's coming in the story. Not only look at the past works of the Father that he's been doing, but look to the work of the Father in raising the Son. Because if Jesus is dead, we should all go home right now. It's too hot in this room. Come on, it's too uncomfortable to lay out your own chair. So many things about the life following Jesus are just too much if he's dead and not risen. But Jesus is a risen Jesus. But woven into the story here isn't just Jesus dealing with unbelief, the reasons and the folly in light of all the evidence to the contrary, but it's also incredible words of encouragement to those who do believe. To those who say, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. To those who say, Lord, I'm overwhelmingly convinced, but there's still all these dark parts of me that I need your help in. To those who follow after Jesus, there are incredible words of encouragement. Up in verse 27 through 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says four times in three sentences that the sheep that hear his voice will be set for eternity. They are fixed. Their position, their identity, their status is set. He says, I will give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus is communicating beyond a shadow of a doubt that his death and his resurrection will accomplish something for all eternity that is not contingent on anything we do and is not contingent on anything Satan can do to thwart the powerful work of God. It's finished. 
When you follow Jesus, you never die. You will never perish. You will always be with him. The Father will protect you for all eternity. These are the promises of those who follow after Jesus. Better than even knowing God is being known by God. It's not just that we hear his voice. It's that he protects us and we're his. It's not just that we believe, but he scoops us in to his pasture and we're under his watchful care. For you and me, this is a shaping truth. To be known by Jesus is to be held secure by the grip of his grace. No one can snatch believers from Jesus' hand or from the Father's hand. Because Jesus and the Father are one. They're both divine, acting with power and purpose that human forces cannot negate. This is a shaping truth for us. Paul picks up on this in Romans 8 where he says, Nothing, 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 nothing can separate you from the love of God. No height, nor depth, nothing. Nor angels, nor demons, nothing. The awful boss, difficult family, friendships, this spiritual rut you've been in for the last two years, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Because we are scooped up into his family. We are under his watchful care. Nothing can separate us from his love. This is why the truth sets us free. The truth allows us to know eternity and live here and now in light of eternity with full confidence that we are his forever. Knowing that we have already won and we are his forever should change how we live here and now. We don't live defensive or defeatist. We don't live cowering away. We can live bold, confident, and victorious lives because we are his and his forever. The narrative ends with a really simple yet repeated statement in John, and many believed in him there. Amidst all the unbelief, there's a remnant. Many believed in him there. For a lot of you in the room, this journey of following Jesus has been full of ups and downs, and, but now you're here for whatever reason, and you believe maybe most of you in the room have given your life to Jesus and you're following after him. But there's a struggle. That doesn't mean all our answers are, all our questions are answered, all our problems are totally figured out. And maybe even if we've got the sort of like intellectual belief, the kind of everyday belief, the aligning, the, the kind of belief that forces different kind of actions in our lives, the, the regularly aligning ourselves to his kingdom and not the kingdom of this world is still a bit of a struggle. And our time, our finances, our efforts, and our kids, with our workplace, and school, with our spouse, there's still so many areas where we're crying out, Lord, I believe, help me believe. Because there are parts that are yet untouched by his good grace. And maybe, like the Jewish people that Jesus interacts with, in spite of all the overwhelming evidence of Jesus in our lives, we're not quite ready to hand ourselves fully over to him. Jesus, you can have part of me, but, but not this part yet. I'm not ready for that. You can have maybe all of this, but shh, don't look over here. Don't look over here. I'm not ready for that part yet. We're not quite ready to stop compartmentalizing our faith. And let him have dominion over all of us. And maybe, maybe the struggle is real. 
because we simply don't trust the goodness of God. That for whatever reason, our, our view of God has been shaped by something other than his unending grace, mercy, compassion, long-suffering, and goodness. And so actually trusting ourselves to this God is kind of scary because we believe or we've been told that he's actually not all good, that he doesn't have your best interests in mind, that he's not actually protective, or that he's not actually all-powerful enough to protect you from the enemy, from the things of this world. And if he's truly good, it's not just for his glory, but it's for our benefit that we trust him with everything. Romans 8 reminds us of that truth as well. It's not only for his glory, but it is for your benefit, not just into eternity, but here in this life, now, today, this week, this month, this year. It is to your benefit to fully trust Jesus, which means if you say you follow Jesus, it is of your detriment to hold back. So many of us have settled for a less than life because we are holding something back. And the truth of this narrative, this story that we're in today, is freedom. Enjoy his goodness. Remember that he is a good shepherd, faithfully tending his sheep, protecting his sheep. Because of the enduring love of the Father, the finished work of Jesus, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you are a sheep well tended by Jesus. The good shepherd who loves you and cares for you. I can't process a text like John 10 without thinking of what is probably the other most famous shepherd text, which is what? Help me out. Psalm 23. Flip over there, if you will. This is where I just want to sit in our last couple of moments. Psalm 23 is this beautiful visual psalm of God's attentive care towards us, not in a vacuum, but actually in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of adversity, in the presence of opposing forces. God's lavish love, grace, mercy, hospitality is on display. You can turn there and read along with me if you'd like, or if you'd like, you can just sit, maybe close your eyes, let your imagination Fill in the picture here. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Both John 10 and Psalm 23 are written to people who consider themselves sheep of the good shepherd. Do you consider yourself as one of God's sheep? If so, 
then appropriate your status as part of the good shepherd's flock. Give all of yourself to him. Enjoy his benefits. Jesus has said, I've come to give life and life abundantly. Don't rob yourself of abundant life because you want to hold back something. Are you going through a dark valley in the presence of enemies? Are you afraid? Remember that your shepherd is with you. That rod and that staff is for beating down those enemies who try to get at you. Are you cast down all four feet in the air and there's nothing you can do? Are you depressed? Are you helpless? Cry out to your shepherd. Lament that the world is not that it should be. Lament that your life is not that it should be. Cry out to the only one who can do anything about it. Because he will pick you up. He will love you. Get you back in the flock. Bind that wound up. Set you on the right path. Now as we respond in worship here in just a moment, I do want to encourage you to always be asking this question as we're working through the scriptures together. Is there some kind of practice? Is there something that you can put into practice this week that might index our hearts and our minds towards the reality that we are well-tended sheep, tended by the flock, tended by the good shepherd? We are part of that flock. Is there a practice we can put into place this week to help cement that reality in our hearts? And I believe there is. Uh, there are all sorts of different ways we can do it, but I have the microphone, so I'm going to give you one. Um, I want to encourage you, challenge you with something this week, a practice that we can all set after, especially as we head into maybe travel. Some of, I know our church is already traveling. As you head into some travel, you see friends, you see family, uh, and maybe conversations might get contentious or a little crazy or whatever. I want to encourage you with this. Start your day here with Psalm 23. That's it. That's it. If you want to level up, put it to memory and just have it swirling around your mind. But maybe just have your phone or, you know me, not your phone, your Bible. Uh, grab your Bible and have it and just start and just read through it slowly. I mean, I'm talking like two minutes. You can make this longer if you want to make it longer. But chances are, if you're anything like me, as soon as you're awake, our kids like have this radar that know we're awake and then they immediately come in. So just grab your Bible, read through Psalm 23. And just maybe ask some questions. God, what do you want me to see about you today? What, what truth do I need to believe today? Where am I not believing today? Show me, maybe in a really tangible way, God, how this is true of you and me. Some of those questions. And see what happens. That's it. I truly believe that God does incredible things when we meet with him with little to no agenda, open his word, and just ask him questions about it. So, start your day, every day this week, with Psalm 23. See what happens. If you want to level up, put it to memory. Just have it swirling around your mind throughout the week. As you head into friends, as you head into families, you head into Thanksgiving, travel, road trip, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Just let that text permeate your mind. Go ahead and stand. I want to pray a blessing for you, and then we'll respond with some singing today. Jesus, we recognize you are here with us. You never leave us or forsake us. But we also recognize that while you're always ready to meet with us, we're not always ready to meet with you.
Maybe it's hurt or pain or unbelief or the sin that we're keeping in this dark corner that we don't want to give over to you. So we confess, even as we pray these things, that we're, we're not always 100% here. But maybe in an instructive way for our hearts, Jesus, we want to worship you with our whole heart today. Not leave anything behind. We want to revel in this truth that you are a good shepherd. You care for us. You love us. You protect us. You tend to us. You discipline us. You lead us. You correct us. You guide us. We want to revel in the truth that we are no longer wandering out in the open, lost, but we have been found by you. We have been found by the one who has changed all human history forever. And because you are not a dead Jesus, you are a risen Jesus that changes everything. Jesus, as we sit and enjoy your presence, as we stand and sing your praise, as we maybe sing these words in glad alignment or in careful instruction to our heart, we ask that you'd meet with us here. We pray, Jesus, that you would do what only you can do and leave us changed today. I pray there's not one person who leaves this room unchanged by your presence today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.